How are we to keep the faith alive and pass it on to the next generation? I think it's actually the first part of this question that perhaps we should focus our attention and energies on. That is to say, the faith must be kept alive in our lives so that it may be passed on. It may be that we get so focused on we need to pass it on to the next generation that we fail to remember and to recognize it has to be alive. It has to be true in our own lives. Last Sunday, we saw the seventh principle here in First Timothy. We are to realize that we live between the time of Jesus' incarnation and his return. So we saw that First Timothy is corrective by nature. And so when Paul writes about the false teachers in the first five verses, the nature of their errors, and then Timothy's role in verses 6 to 16, he's dealing with the situation there in Ephesus to which he has sent uh, Timothy uh, to deal with the problems there. We looked at the first part last Sunday and we saw that Paul um, says that the appearance of false teachers and false teaching should come as no surprise. This is something that was foretold. It states that the source of this false teaching is, in fact, demonic. And then he gives some specifics regarding these false teachings and the reasons why, in fact, they are errors. In reviewing, I want to focus on what Paul writes in verses four and five in light of our study and to help us move on to the next section. So if you would look at verses four and five for everything God created is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving because it is consecrated by the word of God and prayer. Paul writes this to answer the false teaching, telling people that they are to abstain from certain foods, that they are not allowed to eat certain foods, that a good Christian, a spiritual Christian, would not eat certain foods. And no doubt this is connected somehow to uh, the dietary laws of the Old Testament. And Paul says that this is wrong. We are to acknowledge that God is the one who created all things, that God's creation is good, that we are to receive what God has created with thanksgiving, and it is to be consecrated by the word of God and prayer. If you put these things together, what comes to mind, at least for me, is saying grace before a meal. In praying and giving thanks before one eats or a family eats, what is being acknowledged is that God is, in fact, the creator and the giver of all good gifts. That the food that is before you is something God has provided for you. And that God's creation is good. And that thanksgiving is an entirely appropriate response to God's gifts. And prayer is the means of giving thanks to God. Several thoughts come to mind when I think of this. The first of all, first thing is giving thanks before a meal or saying grace is not an exclusively Christian practice. It is one of the most common and universal forms of spoken prayer. Cultures across the planet, uh, if you wish, say grace before a meal. But when a Christian prays before a meal, when a Christian gives thanks before a meal, it in fact is to reflect his or her view of reality. As I've said, God is the creator, his creation is good, and we are to give thanks. Having said that, saying grace may seem commonplace, prosaic, even tedious. It's a ritual or a routine that has little importance or little significance in many people's lives. And all things being equal, that in fact may be the case for many people at different points in their practice. But I would suggest to you that as routine and as tedious as it might seem, 
giving thanks before you eat is a profound act. And it may say more to your children, to the next generation, than you may realize. I would even go a step further and say that it can and should say more to you than you may realize at any given moment. See, in this series, we may have fallen into a trap to think that the passing of the faith on to the next generation is a purely didactic or instructive activity, that here we are, we have this body of information, and we are to pass this on to the next generation. Um, Certainly there is that aspect to it, and we'll see it in our passage today, there is to be the aspect of modeling. Um, But I think we need to do much more than to simply say to the next generation, you need to be thankful. You need to be thankful for what you have. If, well, if in fact there's little gratitude or no gratitude evident in our own, I think it is in the simple act of saying grace, of giving thanks before a meal, that you can in fact convey to your children, to the next generation, that we recognize that God is there, what he has given us, and we are thankful. For many raised in a Christian home, The prayer before a meal oftentimes is the first prayer a child will say, that a child learns to pray before a meal. By the way, there are objections that people raise, and that is it's wrong to have a child do something that they do not understand. That that somehow having a child pray before a meal when they don't know completely what they are doing just is not right that a child needs to understand fully and completely before they do anything. To which I respond, really? How many of us understand fully anything that we're doing, and yet we do things? I would say that full understanding is not necessary. In fact, I would ask you, when you pray before a meal, do you fully comprehend what has happened to bring this meal into being? what God has done in providing this meal, what gratitude you are expressing, or the goodness of the Creator, or the goodness of creation. Do you fully comprehend that every time you say grace? And again, I understand that it can become mundane and routine. But I would also argue that oftentimes in the midst of routine, God by His Spirit can break through. and God can open our eyes to the truth of things. We can have a deeper appreciation of his goodness and of the goodness of his creation. How wonderful it is and just the wonder of God's provision for us. So I would put forward this idea that one of the ways we can pass the faith on to the next generation and indeed keep it alive in our generation is to give thanks before each and every meal. Now, having said that, I have a note here in my notes. I don't wish to impose a legalism. I don't know if any of you went through this, but I did in my teenage years that uh, oftentimes we would go out to play basketball and then we would stop at a a store um, in the Philippines, a sorry, sorry store, and have a Coke or something to sort of refresh ourselves. And then we would have this theological debate as to whether or not we should say grace because it only cost 50 centavos, you know, and like like it it didn't rise to the level of, well... You know, if it costs this much, then you have to say grace. Um, so the last thing I want to do is to somehow create a theological dilemma for you. What I would encourage you to think about 
and to put into practice if you are not already, is to say grace before you eat and to give thanks to the good creator for his good creation. Today we will look at verses 6 through 16. And if you would, listen and follow along as I read. If you point these things out to the brothers, you will be a good minister of Christ Jesus, brought up in the truths of the faith and of the good teaching that you have followed. Have nothing to do with godless myths and old wives' tales. Rather, train yourself to be godly. For physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. This is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. And for this we labor and strive that we have put our hope in the living God, who is the Savior of all men and especially of those who believe. Command and teach these things. Don't let anyone look down on you because you are young, but set an example for the believers in speech, in life, in love, in faith, and in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to preaching and to teaching. Do not neglect your gift, which was given you through a prophetic message when the body of elders laid their hands on you. Be diligent in these matters. Give yourself wholly to them so that everyone may see your progress. Watch your life and doctrine closely. Persevere in them, because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. In these verses we find Paul saying things to Timothy that I would have expected to hear in chapter 1. I would have expected to hear it much earlier in the book, particularly if you go back to chapter 1 in verse 3, as I urge you when I went into Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus so that you may command certain men not to teach false doctrines any longer, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. I would have thought that Paul would have then said what he now says in these 10 verses. He would have said, These are the things that you need to do. But, for whatever reason, Paul now deals with here in chapter 4. In verses 6 through 10, he gives instructions in relation to the false teachers. And then in the rest of the passage, from 11 to 16, Paul wants Timothy to function as an example. So for our purposes and for our series, we come to the eighth principle of how we are to keep the faith alive in our generation and pass it on to the next generation We are to always be in training and we are to model the truth of the gospel. We are always to be in training and we are to model the truth of the gospel. Generally speaking, I would say training is dealt with in the first section and modeling in the second. But things are rarely that organized because remember, that's not why Paul wrote this. He's writing this as corrective. We'll find that actually both sections have a bit of both aspects. But for our purposes, the first section will deal with training and the second with modeling. That training is important, or is indicated, is found in the fact that it appears in verses 6, 7, and 8. Paul has just written about the appearance of false teaching. And we saw that this should not come as a surprise. These are demonic things. And then he gives examples of these teachings and why they are wrong. Now, Paul didn't tell Timothy these things just so he would have information, but so that he could then, in fact, tell the others, he could tell the brothers what Paul had said. And Paul says, if you do this, you will be a good minister of Christ Jesus. Just a side note, the word minister there is in Greek, diakonos, which in chapter 3 
is amazingly translated as deacon, and here suddenly it becomes minister, and in some translations it is servant. I think servant is what, what Paul has in mind here, that Timothy would be a good servant if he points these things out to the brothers. The appearance of false teachings is not to be a surprise. The origin of their teachings is demonic, and this is why they're wrong. Then Paul writes, brought up in the truths of the faith, if he's a good minister of Christ Jesus, brought up in the truths of the faith and of the good teaching you have followed. Unfortunately, the NIV here goes in a different direction, I think, than what Paul intended. Uh, when we read brought up in the truths of the faith, if you know the Bible at all, the New Testament, in Second Timothy, uh, Paul will talk about the fact that Timothy was trained by his mother and his grandmother in Scripture. And so, by translating it as brought up, we might want to make that connection. In fact, the word that Paul uses is training or in training. It's the same word that is used in verses six and uh, seven and eight as well. Um, the ESV, the English Standard Version, has being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. It's an ongoing action. It's a participle, ongoing action. Paul is not saying, okay, you've got your training, you got your diploma. You went to seminary, you're ready to go, you know everything you need to know. Rather, he describes him as someone who is in training. That he is in training, being trained in the truths of the faith. And because he is in training, there is the possibility of distraction, of someone saying something that is wrong. And so Paul says, you are to be in training in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine you have followed. And then he contrasts it with the godless myths and old wives' tales. Godless myths, uh, this is not atheistic myths, but these are myths that are in fact profane as opposed to sacred. And the old wives' tale, this is actually an old expression that was used in Paul's day, that whenever you were involved in a philosophical debate, if you wanted to basically sort of put down the person you were arguing or you were debating, you would say, well, your stuff comes from old wives' tales. That is, when women sit around and weave and do stuff, this is the kind of stuff they talk about. Your, your, your words have no credence. I think we get what Paul is saying. What I find interesting is what follows. Rather, train yourself to be godly. So this is the second time now that the word train or training comes up. And the word is athletic in nature. It has, comes from the same root word that gymnasium does for us in English. The training is for the practice of genuine godliness. Paul's point is that like an athlete, Timothy is to keep himself in vigorous training. Yes, he is a minister. Yes, he has been sent there by the Apostle Paul. But it is not as though he has arrived and he doesn't have anything to learn. But he is to be in training. Paul sees, or what he means here, is a visible expression of the truth that is demonstrated in correct behavior. Timothy is to live a proper life. And to reinforce the metaphor of athletic training, Paul contrasts the benefits of athletic training with training in godliness. I have to say that this is perhaps, at least in Paul's writings, one of the most misunderstood passages. Um, and part of this is because of English translations. NIV says that physical training is of some value 
The King James says, for bodily exercise profiteth little. And so people have walked away with the sense that Christians don't need to exercise, they don't need to take care of their bodies, uh, that has zero value whatsoever, which is not what Paul says in any translation. Um, Paul, in fact, says that physical training does have some value. We could spend much more time on this. The fact that we are human means that we have bodies. And our bodies are the temple of the Spirit. Our bodies are not our own. Jesus came to save us, not simply our souls, but our bodies as well, because we will be resurrected on the last day. Um, We should take care of them. Even though they are temporary, they're temporal, and they will turn to dust. This, I think, is what Paul is saying. If physical training, in fact, is important, then can that you know, the body which will grow old and then we will die and it will turn to dust, if that has importance, what do you think training and guidelines has? In a sense, he argues from the lesser to the greater. Physical training is important and so is training in godliness. In this life and the life to come, This is reinforced by what we read in verse number nine. This is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. There are different opinions here, but for me, verse number nine goes back to verse number eight and not ahead to verse number ten. What he's saying is a physical training which is limited and temporal in nature has real significance and importance. How much more does training in godliness have real significance and importance? In verse number 10, Paul fleshes out a bit this expression, this life and the life to come. If you look at verse number 10, And for this we labor and strive, that we have put our hope in the living God, who is the Savior of all men, especially of those who believe. I would point out that labor and strive should be seen in the light of uh, training. Labor, as Paul uses it in all of his writings, is athletic in nature. And so together, I think Paul speaks of Vigorous activity of concentration. I'm going to be careful how far we take this, but of a program, of a regimen, that in fact, this is what I will do to train myself. And why, why bother? We're saved. We're, God's going to take us to heaven. So what's the big deal? Well, Paul says we have put our faith in the living God, who is the Savior of all men, and especially of those who believe. It is because we have put our hope in God that we don't just kick back and wait for the second coming or for our deaths. But in fact, as the children of God, we seek to be like him, and we train in godliness. The second portion is in verses 11 through 16. And... The first verse, verse number 11, I think is what many have in mind when they think of passing the faith on to the next generation. If you look at verse number 11, command and teach these things. Certainly there are enough traditions within the Christian faith that seem well versed in commanding people what to do. Um, I must tell you, I've met a number of, for the most part, young men um, who have stated their desire to enter the ministry. They want to become pastors. And I got a real sense that they were sort of anxious to be in a position where they could command people what to do. And they could teach them what to do and tell them what to do. Um, 
there's much more to the ministry than that. And by the way, Paul does not end at verse number 11. First of all, he addresses something that must have been of concern there in Ephesus, and that is Timothy's age. Don't let anyone look down on you because you are young. So I mentioned when we started this series, as best we can tell, Timothy is probably about 35 years old when, when Paul writes this to him. And, you know, depending on how old you are, most people don't usually think of 35 as young. Perhaps, and in reality we don't know, he was younger than the elders and the overseers, the false teachers. And so they were using that to sort of lord it over Timothy to say, who are you, you young guy coming in here telling us what to do? They were using his relative youth against him. Uh, remember growing up in the northern part of the Philippines that one of the things that pastors, young pastors, struggled with is as they would go out and share the gospel with people, particularly with elderly people, they say, we don't have to listen to you. And the expression was, we've drunk more water than you have. In other words, we know more than you. And how dare you come in and tell us that you have the truth? Well, Paul has sent Timothy, and now you have what we would call pastors. You have house churches all throughout Ephesus with elders, overseers. And some of these guys have gone off track. They're into false teaching. That's why Timothy's been sent there. And now here comes a 35-year-old man telling men who are older than him, what you're doing isn't right. And they are despising him for his youth. And Paul says, don't let them look down on you because you are young. I can't help but wonder if Paul was thinking of this passage from Psalm 119. Oh, how I love your law. I meditate on it all day long. Your commands make me wiser than my enemies. They are ever with me. I have more insight than all my teachers, for I meditate on your statutes. I have more understanding than the elders, for I obey your precepts. Timothy may be younger, but in fact he has the truth on his side. And then Paul tells Timothy that he is to model the faith. Look at verse number 12. Set an example for the believers in speech, in life, in love, in faith, and in purity. Timothy is to be an example in these things. Some of these, speech and life, are, are pointed out in the list of qualifications for elders and deacons. But some have wondered, why not the other things? Why not the virtues? Why not love and faith and purity? Well, you may remember the principle, read the whole story. As we will go along, we will see that, in fact, these, these elders who have gone off track do not reflect these virtues, and Timothy is, in fact, to do so. He is to model this behavior. It stands in contrast to these men. But that's not why he is to model it. He's not just there to be contrary to them. He is to live a life of the gospel. Which leads to the next verse, verse number 13. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of scripture, to preaching and to teaching. And while some see this as speaking of public worship, I, I don't think that that's necessarily what's going on. But let's not miss the point. It is the centrality of scripture. Reading scripture, teaching scripture, preaching from scripture, as opposed to godly myths and old wives' tales. See, Timothy is younger than these guys, they're looking down on him because he is younger. And Paul says, your foundation is scripture. 
the public reading of it, the teaching of it, the preaching of it. You are not the final authority, so your age is not an issue. Your final authority is scripture. We take revelation, God's revelation, seriously. This is God's speaking. So Timothy should not worry that he is younger, because after all, he's not claiming to be the final authority. In the next three verses, one could make the case that Paul returns to the theme of training. Verse 14, do not neglect your gift, which was given, given you through a prophetic message when the body of elders laid their hands on you. To be honest, what Paul is referring to here is not known to us. Certain traditions have arisen based on this verse. Um, Timothy knew what he was talking about, and I would say the people in Ephesus knew what he was talking about. What I would point out is this. While Paul does mention that Timothy was given a gift, and we might say a spiritual gift, and it was through a prophetic message, we would say a supernatural message, that the body of elders laid their hands on him. For all of that, that is true. But what Paul wants Timothy to know, he is not to neglect the gift. Paul tells Timothy, in essence, don't rest in the fact that one day way back when you were given a gift through the laying on of hands, a prophetic message was given. Don't think that that was the end of the story. Don't think, okay, I've got the gift, I'm set. He is not to neglect the gift. And what does this involve? We'll look at verse number 15. Be diligent in these matters. Give yourself wholly to them so that everyone may see your progress. Training is the word that comes to mind as Paul writes about being diligent and giving oneself wholly to them. What comes as a bit of surprise is the last part of verse number 15. So that everyone may see your progress. Far too often people assume that those in ministry have arrived. They have, they have reached the pinnacle. They, they can't get any better than they are. They can't get, they can't mature anymore. They've, they've achieved this status. No more progress to be made. And no doubt there are those in ministry who sort of encourage this type of thinking. The reality is this is simply not the case. Until the day we die, by God's grace, we are to be growing and making progress in our faith. And here is a young man who has been given a gift through a supernatural prophetic message and the laying on of hands. And Paul says, you need to keep working at it. And people in Ephesus, humanly speaking, a year later should be able to say, you know what? I've seen that Timothy has grown. That they could see that, in fact, he has made progress in the faith. We are all on the path. We are to be making progress by the grace of God. We can never say, I have arrived. I don't need to grow anymore. I don't need to make any more progress. I have reached the end of the road. I'm just waiting for the second coming or, or my death. But I have achieved it all. Paul then concludes this section with verse number 16. Watch your life and doctrine closely. Persevere in them. Because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. 
I would argue that Paul returns to the theme of modeling here, that Timothy is to watch his life, how he lives, and his doctrine, what he teaches closely, in part and only in part because others are watching. But if you think about it, if we are concerned to pass the faith on to the next generation, much of that will involve them watching how we live more than listening to what we tell them. I would imagine that one of the terrors, and I don't use that word lightly, one of the terrors of being a parent is that your children may in fact reflect those aspects of you that are less than what you want them to be. That your children may in fact pick up your bad habits. And, and they don't do the things you're supposed, that you tell them to do. In fact, they simply watch you. They mimic you. And it's almost like looking into a mirror and you're filled with dread that, oh no, my child has turned out like me. Timothy is to watch his living and his doctrine closely. And he is to continue. He is to persevere. The NIV has it. The King James has continue in them. The ESV persist in this. I think we get this, that we need to continue. It's the last part that is troubling, because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. It's like, wait a minute, I thought we were saved by the grace of God. It is the gift of God. And what is this business of persevering, continuing, and persisting? Well, if you think a moment, if by God's grace we become the children of God, then we are to behave as children of God. At what point in our lives do we stop behaving like the children of God? I might as well ask, at what point do we cease to be the children of God? The answer is never. And the promise of forgiveness today from Romans 8, nothing will separate us from the love of God. So Timothy is to model this reality. That we are always the children of God. We are always to behave as the children of God. And we are to continue in this until Jesus returns or until God takes us home. And we are to be an example to those around us. Sadly, there have been those who have been an example to those around them. And then at a certain point, they've decided, that's it. I've, I've finished what I wanted to do. And now I'm going to do what I want. In fact, I can tell you of examples of people in ministry, of men in ministry, who have said, they put it this way, I have lived this much of my life for God, and now I'm going to live the rest of it for me. No. Paul tells Timothy that he is to continue. He is to persist. And in that, he will be a model, an example for those who are looking at him, and they will continue in the faith as well. In the years I've been here at the church on Melrose, we've had a number of those who were raised in Christian homes, who as a result, one might say, of being raised in a Christian home, left the faith, at least for a time. It is by the grace of God that God has brought them back. For some of them, what drove them from the faith, from church, was the absence of seeing the faith lived out. For all the talking, for all the sermons, there was no living. 
if we are to keep the faith alive in this generation and pass it on to the next, our lives are to be marked by training in godliness and modeling the truth. Not asking for perfection. We know that is not possible. After all, Paul does talk to Timothy about progress, that they will see your progress. What I would remind you is that the truth is not just words. It is, in fact, a reality to be lived out. And it may be or it may begin in something as simple as saying grace before meals. We have young ones among us who will, the Lord willing, one day have their own little ones. As we wait for baby Greenholt, we're very excited. And yet, think about it, by God's grace, one day Mike and Jesse will be grandparents. Here they are on the threshold of parenthood. And then, if God gives them the years, great-grandparents. We are to keep the faith alive in our generation. And it isn't simply by talking, it is by living and by doing. And then we pass it on to the next one, and by God's grace, they pass it on to the generation after them. We are always to be in training, and we are to model the faith. Let's pray together. Father, for a variety of reasons, we have come to see the gospel as less than what it is. Something more manageable, something that in this culture is a, you know, a private preference. That it is not to affect all of our lives, every aspect of our life, but just something we do on Sunday. Help us to see that this is not the case. That in fact the gospel is to transform how we live. We are always to be in training. We are to model the faith. That by your grace we are to make progress day by day. Sometimes it's a case of two steps forward and one back. Or one forward and two back. This is not something that is static. It shouldn't be stagnant. It's an ongoing struggle, like an athlete in training. And we are to continue. We are to persist. By your grace, teach us to be grateful. And perhaps more than anything, for the things we take for granted. Help us to remember that you are the good creator. And this is your good creation. And you provide for us in so many ways. And we are to be thankful and respond in prayer. And in doing this, may we train ourselves as well as model the truth of the gospel. I ask that in the days to come we would think these things through and then not be hearers only but doers of the word as well. We pray for this congregation, particularly with regard to our financial situation. All things are yours and all things are possible with you. And we ask that you would provide 
but we believe that we need to continue the work here at church, work that Titus and Scott have so faithfully done. We ask that you would provide what we need. Thank you that we could come together to worship you today. May your spirit and your grace go with us as we leave this place. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank <clears throat> you.